Father God, again, thank you for, for the love that you have for each of us. Lord, that, that you love us wherever we may be, whether we know you full well or whether we don't, that you are constantly calling us towards yourself. God, we pray that as we approach your scripture here in just a minute, <clears throat> that we can hear your voice speaking to each of us, that we know that you're alive and active and that you desire to continually draw us near you. Lord, may you, where you, meet, may you meet each of us where we are this morning, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, convict us where we need to be convicted, and ultimately increase our love for you so that we can increase our love for each other. Amen. <clears throat> this morning... Uh, we're going to continue in our series that we've been in for, for five weeks now. This is week six of our Revelation series. If you haven't been with us for the last five weeks, there, there's some things that you missed, and we're going to do our best to keep, those, um, keep you up to date on those, but you can listen back as well. Uh, but today we are going to shift gears just a little bit. For the last five weeks, what we've done is we've taken a, a we've kind of zoomed in on, on parts of, of Revelation. We've taken the 10-foot view of each of the cities that, that John is writing to in, in the beginning of Revelation. Um, hopefully, what you've been able to see through that particular that look is that, um, that each of those letters were written to real churches in real context um, that were dealing with real-world problems, and that John wanted to encourage them and help them grow into their love for God so that the world could be changed through them. Today, though, uh, we are going to continue to look at Revelation um, but we're going to do it a little differently. So we could continue on and continue to look at the last two churches in the beginning, and, and you would see just as much, just as many interesting things as we've seen for the last five weeks. But uh, we realize that Revelation is more than just the first three chapters. And now, I'd, honestly, if we were going to deal with the entirety of the book, it would take us a really, really long time. Um, but I, I think it's important for us to take a step back from 10 feet to about 1,000 feet and see that there are bigger themes that run through the entirety of the book. Um, one of the reasons Revelation is so difficult to understand is because there are multiple themes that run through the entirety. Um, there, there's the, we've seen over the last five weeks that there's, there's Greek imagery. There's imagery that speaks to the world, uh, uh, the Greek world, the Greek and Roman world they live in. But also, throughout the, throughout the book, we see that there are other themes that run underneath it as well. We see that, in particular, Old Testament themes that run through the book of Revelation, and that's what we'll be looking at today. The book of Revelation as a whole has about 404 verses in it, and has over 500 Old Testament references and allusions Many of them direct references. There are, there, are, there are more allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation than there actually are verses. So we, we struggle to understand Revelation partly because we don't know the context in which these individual letters are written to these individual churches. We've seen that in the past few weeks. But another reason we struggle to understand Revelation is maybe because we don't understand the Old Testament. In Revelation, John directly references or quotes the book of Daniel 34 times, the book of Isaiah 49 times, the book of Ezekiel 31 times, Exodus 21, Psalm, 20, Psalm 23 times, the Psalms 23 times, Jeremiah 16 times, and Zechariah 10 times. There are 184 direct quotes in 404 verses, basically one direct Old Testament quote every two lines of the book of Revelation. There are also allusions to Genesis, to Numbers, to Deuteronomy, to Kings, to Proverbs, to Hosea, Joel, Amos, Job, Micah, 
and even the Maccabees, for you Catholics out there, right? If you're not Catholic, you're wondering, why would the Maccabees matter? Well, the Catholics have a little extra sometimes, and that's the Maccabees, so that's in there too. And, all, and also Leviticus, which is what we're, we're going to look at today, which I know you might be going, I'm ready to check out, but don't. It's really interesting. I want to point out one thing, too, before we move on. You might be wondering, okay, fine, there are a lot of Old Testament verses, but how would anyone understand that? We miss it, and we, can, and we have Bibles all the way around us. And that's true. But do you remember where John was when he wrote Revelation? We talked about it way back in week one. When John wrote the letter of Revelation, he was actually in exile on the island of Patmos, meaning he most likely didn't have Old Testament scrolls. It's likely that he wrote the book of Revelation with all of those Old Testament allusions all from his memory. It's a little convicting when we think of that. We, we struggle to understand parts of the Bible because we don't know enough of it to understand what some of the points that are being made are. The Old Testament itself says to write our, the law on our hearts, meaning have it internalized. And clearly, in the book of Revelation, John has done that. He's taken it seriously. My hope today is that we can spend a little bit of time breaking some of that down so that we can see how beautiful and how connected first history is and two the scriptures are to themselves. So let's dive in. So we're going to take a little time in the book of Leviticus this morning. And now how many of you have ever tried to read through the entire Bible before? How many of you got stuck on Leviticus? Yeah? I mean, no one's raising their hand because you're liars. Everybody gets stuck on Leviticus. It is so hard to read because it's just filled with all of these laws, right? And in particular, because we don't follow the laws in the same way, because in the Old Testament, what God is doing is he's helping build a community. He's giving them rules on how they're supposed to interact with each other. Now, each of the laws in Leviticus is meant to do one of two things. Either it helps them to love God better, even the weird ones, or love each other better. But it's done in a context outside of what we are familiar with, and so what it ends up feeling like is a whole bunch of measurements and a whole bunch of different kinds of things uh, that's just really, really difficult to read. So we're not going to read the whole thing this morning, don't worry, uh, but we are going to take a look at one particular part, and then we're towards the end of Leviticus, and it's actually the holiday season. So God establishes a series of festivals in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 23, and those festivals relate to what we're going to look at today in Revelation. So it starts like this, Revelation 23, 4. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord, and on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you and reap the harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of your harvest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb, a two-year-old without defect. Together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah, the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted, roasted new grain until the day you bring the offering to the Lord. 
This will be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. And like we said, that's why we have a hard time reading Leviticus, right? Even just going through uh, 11 verses is tricky. Sorry, 14 verses. Now, we could go on because there actually are five more festivals after that, but, but um, we're not going to do that. We're going to just talk about them this morning. Let's acknowledge what's happening in this passage, though, first. See, it's really easy to get lost in all the detail of Leviticus without actually realizing what's going on here. See, God is organizing the society that he, that, he, that he wants his people to be, and he actually, in that organization, sets aside several weeks every year for them just to be together and actually have parties. A lot of what we see in God's festival schedule is the times of rest and celebration, and we're going to look at that this morning as well. It says something about God, right, that one of the foundational principles that he wants his people to have is a time of relax and celebration, so the Hebrew word for festival is the word mikrach, which means festival. We translate that in our scriptures, but it also means something else. It means rehearsal. So as the ancient Hebrews are thinking about their festival schedule, they ask themselves the question, what are we rehearsing for? Each time they go through this festival cycle, they understand they're rehearsing for something that's coming in the future. God tells them in the book of Leviticus to rehearse, but he never tells them what they're rehearsing for. And that's what we're, where we're going to camp this morning. We're going to walk through all seven festivals as quickly as we can and ask ourselves the question, what else is going on here? Why has God asked them to do this, this, this cycle? And why has he asked him to engage with him in this way? What is he asking them to rehearse for? So the first festival we're going to look at this morning, we saw in the passage we just read, is the festival of Passover. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Passover, Passover is the celebration of God freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. What happens is, that it's the end of the ten plagues, so if you've heard of the ten plagues, uh, Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and God sends a series of ten plagues to, to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. The final plague... Comes, uh, comes on, is, is why we celebrate Passover. The Israelites were asked by God to kill a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on their doorpost, which I get it, that's weird um, in our culture, but, there, but there's, a big, there's a significant meaning to that, in particular in the Old Testament. You see, the lamb in, in this space was a sacred image in Egyptian culture. Actually, we have a number of temples that would have both a ram and a lamb right at the entrance. Do so you realize that by killing a lamb, you're killing a sacred animal of Egypt, which means something. So if you're going to have a whole series of slaves slaughter a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost, they better be certain that the next day God's going to set them free. Because if he doesn't, it's not going to just be lamb blood on the doorpost next time. Pharaoh's going to lose his mind. They're disrespecting Pharaoh, they're disrespecting the Egyptian uh, religious structure, but they're saying we trust that God's going to free us. So Passover is a sign of trust in God. God asks them and Passover, do you trust me? Do you trust me to lead you out into the wilderness? Do you trust me to lead you into the future? We see in the story that Israel does, and God sets them, through, and sets them free. And so in Leviticus 23, we get a set of written instructions, making sure that the Israelites never forget what happened at Passover. Every year, on the 10th day of the first month, God says, choose a lamb. 
He then says, inspect that lamb for four days. And then on the 14th day, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the priest is going to blow a trumpet. He's going to raise a knife. He's going to kill the lamb. And you're going to remember that this lamb died so that you didn't have to. This happened every year at the temple. Every year they would rehearse. They would practice this particular festival for what? Now, some of you already know where we were going with this because we actually looked at this a few good Fridays ago. But let's look at it again. If we jump 50, about 1,500 years ahead of the first Passover, it's, we, we come to the time of Jesus. And on a day that we've called Palm Sunday, we see something really, really interesting. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is referred to as the Lamb of God. For four days, he hangs around in the city being tested. If you read through it in the Gospels, what you see is that during those four days, the, the Pharisees are constantly questioning him, testing him, trying to trick him, trying to make sure that he actually is who he says he is. Until they finally crucify him. And look at this, Mark 15, 3. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Just let that sink in for a second. We talked about this practice, this festival practice Israel had to do each and every year. A lamb would be brought into the city probably at the same time that Jesus comes in in the triumphal entry. For four days, they would inspect the lamb to make sure it was without blemish. Without blemish. At the same time, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. And at the very moment, at three in the afternoon, the trumpet from the temple would have blasted. The high priest would have had taken the knife to kill the lamb. And at that very moment, at three o'clock, Jesus dies as our lamb. He declares, it's finished. It's pretty cool, right? But there are actually six more festivals. Festival two, unleavened bread. Leviticus 23 says to celebrate this festival on the 15th day of the month. In other words, you celebrate this on the day after Passover. Now, this particular festival was focused on sin. They understood like yeast works its way through an entire loaf of bread, Israel understood that sin works its way through us, and so you would eat an unleavened bread, bread without yeast. Now, there was a particular practice that was really interesting that, that Jewish families would do on, to celebrate the practice of unleavened bread. Every year, on the day after Passover, a father would lift up a loaf of bread. He'd break off a piece and he'd give it to his kids who would hide the bread in the house, which is weird, but it's something that they would do. See, the piece of broken bread that represented um, the coming of the Messiah, the one who would restore hope that would free them from the clutches of sin that was hidden now but would be revealed later. Again, in this particular festival, they're rehearsing for something. Again, we jump forward 1,500 years. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, 
he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. In other words, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for, he says. I will set you free. So on the day when little Jewish children were searching for hidden bread, Jesus would have been hidden away in the garden tomb. We see that they're rehearsing, and we're starting to understand what they're rehearsing for. But there's still five more festivals as well. After the festival of unleavened bread was the festival of first fruits. This festival is supposed to take place the first Sunday after Passover. So if Passover is on a Tuesday, unleavened bread would be on Wednesday, and then first fruits would be on Sunday. Which means that if Passover is on Wednesday, unleavened bread would be on Thursday, and then first fruits would still be on Sunday. It's always the first Sunday after Passover. So, then, so what, what we see then is once every seven years, Passover would fall on a Friday. Meaning, the unleavened bread then would be on Saturday, and first fruits would still be on Sunday. All three days would line up. Whenever that would happen, the celebration was different from the rest. It was bigger. There was an extra electricity in the air. See, because first fruits was a celebration of life. It celebrated the harvest, the crops that God had provided for the year, and the God, that God would provide for the next year. It was a declaration that God could be trusted to provide and more than that, it was, a, it was a declaration that God could be trusted with your life, with the things that you needed to sustain yourself. Now, to celebrate first fruits, the priest would read a particular passage from Ezekiel 37, which says this, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Each year they would celebrate the, the festival of first fruits, rehearsing for which you've probably seen a pattern already. Remember where we've been. Jesus dies on Passover, right at 3 o'clock. He's in the tomb on the celebration of unleavened bread, and then first fruits comes on Sunday, which is Easter, the day in which the tomb is empty. Once every seven years, the three days would line up, so at the same time, the priest is reading Ezekiel 37, the passage that we just looked at, about dry bones coming back to life. At that very moment, Jesus is walking out of the tomb. It's amazing how these things lined up, isn't it? Paul writes about this uh, to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Each of these festivals is rehearsing for something, and each of these things we see coming to pass in the life of Jesus. And yet we have four more festivals to go. Don't look at the clock, it's lying. I know I'm running out of time already. But it's real. we'll get there. Festival number four is the Festival of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost. Now, Pentecost just means 50. So the Festival of Weeks is celebrated 50 days after Passover. And like the rest of the festivals, it's rooted in Jewish history. Pentecost is the celebration of God giving the law on Mount Sinai. So 
Israel come, on Passover, Israel leaves Egypt for 50 days. They wander until they get to Sinai, and then God gives, them, gives the law to Moses on that particular day. They celebrate it on the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Now, this celebration is a little bit of a mixed bag because on the one hand, the, the Israelites understood that the law was a gift from God. It was a good thing. All throughout the ancient world, the, the ancients struggled to understand what their God wanted from them. So we, we, have, we actually have ancient laments of kings who've said, I've tried everything to make you happy. Why aren't you happy? I've given you 100 cows and 50 goats, and yet you still brought calamity. What the law does for Israel is says, that's never going to happen to you. This is how we do things. This is how it works. It's supposed to be a blessing. But if you remember the story of the giving of, a law, of the law, you also know that for Israel, it's marked by failure as well. Moses goes up the mountain to get the law from God, and when he comes back down, he sees that they've built a golden calf, that they've gone astray. And so when he comes back down, Moses is furious. And we actually read about that story in Exodus 32, 27. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about that day, 3,000 people died. It's a horrible story. But this would be part of what Israel would read each Pentecost, to remember that God had given them the, the law, but they had also failed in the midst of it. During their celebration, they would also read another story about a holy mountain from Ezekiel 1 and 2, which says something like this. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by a brilliant light. The center, center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Each year they would rehearse this festival, remembering those two things. So what we've seen then is that Jesus dies on Passover He's hidden away during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. He rises from the dead on first fruits. So you have to be imagining, you have to imagine that 50 days later on Pentecost, you're expecting something big to happen again. You've got to imagine there's some anticipation from the disciples. And they aren't let down. Acts 2 says this: When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seeing. They saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. At Pentecost, something amazing happens again. Now, a priest is reading from Ezekiel about wind and fire descending down on a mountain, and all of a sudden, it happens. It's all been a rehearsal for all of this. All the partying, all the festivals, all the rules and rituals were all a big setup for Jesus. And actually, look what happens next. The Spirit comes down on each disciple, filling them. And as they go out, Peter begins to preach to everyone who's out there that would listen. And look what happens. Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized. Notice the number. About 3,000 were added that day. See, there are no throwaway details in the Bible. 3,000 died on the first Pentecost. 3,000 are saved on the second one. As you read through Scripture, so often we can miss those little details and realize they're pulling us towards something else. It's no wonder that Paul says, He has made us <clears throat> competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. For the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, we see as each of these first five festivals, we see that, that, that they were rehearsing for something, and each time those would come up after the life of Jesus, something amazing would happen. Which brings us to festival number five, the festival of trumpets. So the first four festivals happen in the spring. The final three happen in the fall. The festival of trumpets was about announcing that God is king. Once again, he's made the harvest come, and once again, you would have food on your tables. So after you would harvest your crops, you would gather again to throw a big party. They would blow loud trumpets across Israel. It was said that the sound of trumpets could be heard throughout the entire nation. And you would declare that God is king. Now you have to imagine, after Pentecost, we've come back, if we've come back around to the festival of trumpets, you would think that when that rolled around, the first year after the resurrection, it would be easy for people to expect something really, really big to happen, right? God hasn't missed one yet. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. But the Feast of Trumpets comes and goes and nothing happens. Nothing spectacular anyway. Life goes on as normal. And so throughout the New Testament, we see a pattern. Notice how Paul, one of the, uh, Paul describes the second coming. He says it this way, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Or another place, he says, It'll happen in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And this is where we come back to Revelation. I get it, it took a while, but hopefully that was interesting to you. So why we did all that? It's easy to miss one of the layers that runs through the book of Revelation, and that's the fact that it's based on these final three festivals. John begins the book of Revelation by saying this, after, I, and after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had heard first speaking to me was like a trumpet, and it said, come here. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after that. The book of Revelation is kicked off with a trumpet, a declaration that we've seen already. Each week so far, we've seen that, that the Roman world has declared other things to be king, whether it was Domitian or Artemis or Asclepius. Each week, we, John has declared, I, I know that Rome declares these people to be king, but I've seen the throne and they're not on it. Jesus is. And so he kicks that off, this declaration of the trumpets that Jesus is king. And then, it moves us to Festival 6, the Day of Atonement. See, the Day of Atonement was celebrated on the 10th day of the 7th month. There are 10 days between the Festival of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. The Jews referred to these days as the 10 days of awe. They believed that during these 10 days, God would open what he called the book of life to examine the deeds of every single person. So during the time of atonement, for those 10 days, people would confess their sins before God so that on the day of atonement, they could be forgiven and have their names written in the book of life. On the day of atonement, the priest would lay his hand on a goat called a scapegoat. Maybe you've heard that before. And he would symbolically cast all the sins of the people onto the goat. And then he'd send it out again into the wilderness, never to be seen again. They would take a lamb and offer it as a sacrifice, and the people would see that the lamb got what they deserved. His blood shed so theirs didn't have to be. 
The Lamb's death brought them life, they understood on the Day of Atonement. Now, if you were to read through the book of Revelation, Jesus is depicted very clearly as a lamb, actually as a slain lamb. But look what John does. Revelation begins with a trumpet blast, but then look how it ends. Revelation 20, And then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What we see is ten days of awe have become, ten, or become a thousand years. Then the devil, who, dece- who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. What we see here at the end of Revelation is that ten years has become a thousand. And at the end, Satan, like the scapegoat, is sent away. And Jesus, the atoning lamb, sits on the throne to write the names in the book of life. We see that the end of Revelation mirrors the Day of Atonement. Which brings us then finally to the final festival, which we read in Revelation this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The final festival in the cycle of festivals for Israel, all seven of them, is the Festival of Tabernacles, which was all about remembering how God lived amongst his people in the wilderness. Helps them to remember that God was actually with them. After atonement, After we see atonement and revelation, what happens? God then lives with his people on the new earth. See, each week so far, we've seen that this is a letter written to real people in real time to help them navigate through real problems and then relate that to how we're living now. The the book of Revelation isn't an elaborate secret formula or an elaborate code. It's actually far more beautiful than that. And hopefully we can see that again today. Whether we're looking at the 10-foot picture, like of the previous weeks, or the 1,000-foot or the picture of God speaking to his people today, we see that, that throughout the entire book, it's, it's layered with this beauty and driving us somewhere. Which does bring us, we, 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 with all of that information, what does that actually mean for us today? What is John trying to say to us? In the book of Corinthians, Paul says that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. It's kind of the big three of faith, if you will. Faith makes sense to us, and so does love, but hope is often more tricky. And that's what, Paul, or that's what John is laying out here. He's declaring to a world that looks dark, a world that's filled with disillusionment, a world that, in which Christians don't know what's going to come next. He's declaring that that all of this has an order and a structure. That even though it's complicated and layered, God is bringing us somewhere. 
that he has a plan for us, that there is hope, that in the end, evil does not win, that evil does not win, that in the end, Domitian does not win, or Artemis, or Asclepius, in the end, Jesus does. What John is giving is a declaration of hope. When things look dark, don't give up on God because he hasn't given up on you. Just like the first four festivals were fulfilled in the, in the way that they could see it, so will the last three. Evil doesn't win. The lamb is on the throne. You see, what Revelation is meant to do, especially at 1,000 feet, is to give hope that what is will not persist. That what is coming is good and all will be made right. There's a beauty in Scripture that as we dive deeper and deeper in, what we see is that everything has always been driving in a direction. That each and everything that, thing that God has done is meant to draw us closer to himself. And that we're supposed to live as people of hope. Because the declaration at 10,000 feet is the same as the one at 10. That no matter what, where we've been or what we've done what, or what pain we're going through now, what is will not persist because what's coming is better. Maybe that's the message that you need to hear this morning. That God is, that God is orchestrating pieces of your life to give you hope as well. Maybe that's a message you need to share with someone around you this morning to, to be a person who lives that hope out daily. Because the fact of the matter is that even though sometimes it's hard to see, sometimes we have to see work, that each and every part of what God is doing is bringing him towards himself. That we're called to live in the hope that Revelation shows us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray that this morning, no matter where we are, what we've gone through, that we can see that, that everything is driving in a direction. That God, we, that just like Israel was rehearsing for what life would be like after your resurrection, we are, we're, we're rehearsing for what life would be like when you come again. Give us your wisdom to live as people of hope. To always draw ourselves nearer to you so that we can love you and love each other. Amen.